So we are preaching a series right now through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we transition into more clearly applied theology, or just simply put, more practical stuff. While it is true that the first half of Ephesians is more theological and the second half is more practical, I do not like to draw too thick of a line between that which is practical and that which is theological. Life and the knowledge of God belong together. The beauty of the gospel grips our heart, it directs our minds, and it orders our steps. Our text today is quite beautiful. It leads us to worship. Our text today is theological. It teaches us about God. Our text today is practical. It helps us think about how we should live on a random Tuesday in March. This morning we'll think about who God is, how he calls us to live, and how he equips us to live the life to which we've been called. We'll even see the goal of the Christian life more clearly. After all, why are we even here this morning? Why do we gather every week? Why do we care about the church? What are we doing? Our text even begins to answer such big questions as what is Christianity for? What are pastors for? What are leaders in the church for? What are spiritual gifts for? What is all of this about? If this is the first sermon you've ever heard or the 1,000th sermon you've ever heard, I hope there is something here for you. We'll see this morning that, and here's sort of the main idea, the big idea that will get reinforced throughout. The one God gives many gifts for one goal, that together the many would become one. The one God gives many gifts for one goal, that together the many would become one. Let's get right to it. There's a lot to consider in this passage. I want to see three things in our text this morning that will form the outline of this sermon. First, we'll see one faith in one God that the church has, that we have one faith in one God. Second, we'll see many gifts for many saints. Many gifts for many saints. And third, we'll see one goal for all of us. One goal for all of us. First, Paul reminds the Ephesians that they share one faith in one God. Then he teaches them that there are many gifts for many saints and that there is one goal for all of us. The title of this sermon is One God, One Goal. Look with me in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the first six verses here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here is the charge in light of all the gospel truth and powerful prayer that has already come in this letter. The Apostle Paul has reminded the Ephesians of the power of the gospel. The gospel that resurrects dead souls, that unites Jew and Gentile, and that preaches the gospel to powers and principalities in the unseen realm. He has reminded them of the power of this gospel. He prays that they would know the love of God 
A love that has no beginning and has no end, that they would begin to know the height and depth and length and breadth of a love that surpasses knowledge, that they would have some idea of the measure of God's immeasurable love. He prays that they would know God's unmatched power, power that conquers sin, hell, and death, power that changes lives, topples the mighty, and brings to nothing the powers of this world, a power that he says he chooses to work in and through broken vessels like us. He prays that the saints would know that God is able to do abundantly more than they could ever ask or imagine. In view of all that he's taught and prayed about God's power, God's love, the goodness of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the incredible news that the gospel is, hear the force of the therefore. Therefore, in light of all of this preceded, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the life to which you've been called. What does that manner of life look like? He begins to show us in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A preliminary word is in order. Just a simple diagnostic question for us. Do such things mark our lives? Are such things evident in us? Is humility evident in me? Thinking of others before we think of ourselves. Humility is not necessarily thinking, as C.S. Lewis has reminded the church, not necessarily thinking less of yourself, it's just simply thinking of yourself less. Does humility mark our lives? Gentleness, being tender-hearted with others, speaking to build up instead of tear down, speaking to give a word that helps instead of makes you feel vindicated or validated. Are you gentle? Does patience mark your life? Oh, how patient is the Lord with you. How patient is the Lord with me. Can I not be patient with others? Does humility mark our life, does gentleness mark our life? Does patience mark our life? What about bearing with one another in love? You can't bear with one another if you're always just leaving things, leaving friend groups, leaving relationships, leaving churches, leaving organizations, leaving jobs. No, the gospel calls us to dig our heels in in love and be a steady force for good in the lives of others. Bearing with one another in love looks like staying. It looks like forgiving. It looks like not growing bitter, even when you are wronged. It looks like not walking away from commitments and relationships that get tough, but bearing with one another, not out of compulsion, but out of love. There are some of us here this morning who are bearing with our spouse, bearing with relationships in our church, bearing with relationships in your workplace, but you're bearing with those out of compulsion, and that is unsustainable. God calls us to bear with one another in love. Bear with others in love in hard seasons. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that looks like humility. It looks like gentleness. It looks like 
patience, it looks like bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is a fun observation. Notice he doesn't say, notice to make unity. He says to what? Maintain unity. What does that mean? It means that unity is a gift. Unity is given to us in Christ. You just have to maintain that unity in the spirit with the bond of peace. Unity is a gift. It is a theological reality. You are one because God says you are one. You are one because God has made us one in Christ. God has done the hard work. Now in the spirit, he continues that work through us if we will just keep showing up with our hands open to him. This idea of bearing with one another This idea of maintaining unity leads Paul to theological reflection on this idea of unity. Unity is a gift God gives that flows from his very character. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, we share one faith in one God that brings us together in one body. We have one hope to which we have all been called. There is one future that we share. There is one Lord we obey, one faith we confess, one baptism we receive, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Hear the force of the repetition. One God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope. Brothers and sisters, we share one faith and one hope in the Lord God in whom we have all been baptized. This one God makes us one body. He is over all and through all and in all. We are one people who belong to one God, but he has given us many gifts. Let's look together in verses seven through 12 at the many gifts for many saints. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's stop there for just a moment. I love verse seven. Grace was given to each one of us according to our own abilities. Is that what, oh, that's not what it says, right? Grace was given to each one of us according to our past. Grace was given to each one of us according to our own sense of self. No, 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 no. Grace was given to each of us according to Christ's gift. When he ascended on high, he freed captives and gave gifts to men. Specifically, we'll limit ourselves for the most part to what Paul says here, but we could open this discussion up in a lot of ways. Let's just limit, just for the sake of the sermon, to mostly just this passage. What are the sorts of gifts that he begins to say that he's given the church? He's given the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He gave apostles to start new works, to carry out the gospel message, the first generation of apostles to be a link between the witness of Christ and the witness of the church, that through the apostles, an eyewitness account might go forth, that there would be authority on which the church may be built 
that authority would be written down. It would be eventually codified for the church throughout time and space. He gave these original apostles to be a foundation, a vital link between the life and ministry of Jesus and the ongoing ministry of the church. While the original generation of apostles and their unique calling has long passed, God gives sort of, we can call them little a, apostles, to, to carry the message of Jesus to people all over the world, to cross cultures and borders, to go where people do not believe, to start new works, to do new things, to be creative for the glory of God and the good of others. Apostles go and do, they go and start, they blaze new trails. They're on the frontier. He gave apostles that this message would go to the whole world. He gave prophets to reveal his heart. He gave prophets to remind his people of his truth over and over and over, even and especially when they do not want to hear it. Who is a prophet? As a general rule, I'm often, (laughs) I shouldn't say this, I've been out of the pulpit for way too long. Uh, A prophet is, I'm very leery of folks who would self-identify as a prophet, of course, but I think in some ways prophets are are teachers. They're people who help us know the truth of God. And sure, a prophet then can be a pastor or a theologian, but, but I think, I think most prophets are just praying grandmothers. They're just praying people who know God and who know his truth. And who, when you go to them for counsel, they can tell you something of the heart of God. Not because they've got an advanced degree, but because they have something way, way better than that. They have the presence and grace of God. Prophets reveal the heart of God. He gave apostles to blaze new trails. He gave prophets to confront the church with the truth, to lead us into his heart. He gave evangelists. Now, what might evangelists do? I think evangelists bring outsiders in. Evangelists take the good news of Jesus to people around them who do not know him, who need to hear the message of Jesus. Evangelists remind God's people that the family is not yet full. Evangelists remind God's people that there are people out there who have not heard the gospel, who need to hear the gospel. This is what an evangelist does. Evangelists come into the church and say, we need to grow, not because of our size or our stature, but because there are so many who have not heard the gospel and we need to go and share it with them. If evangelists are a gift to the church to go to the outsider, then God has given gifts for the insiders as well. He gave shepherds to care for the flock of God. Shepherds tend to the flock. Like a literal shepherd tends to his sheep, shepherds bind up wounds, provide shoulders on which to cry and pray for those in their care. Shepherds chase straying sheep. They protect the flock and they care for the church. But we need guidance with care. He gave teachers to instruct the people of God. Teachers serve with their mind and their mouth. They learn the word of God, they meditate on the word of God, and they think of how most faithfully to apply the word of God for the sake of their hearers. Teachers don't exist for their platform, teachers exist for their hearers. The point is that like, you would not come and hear me preach and teach so that I can have a big ministry. The point is that I would preach and teach so that your life would be transformed. It's easy to get that backwards. 
Teachers make plain the mystery of Christ, as Paul says. Teachers direct us to God's word when the voices around us point us anywhere but. There is one God, and he's given all sorts of gifts. Paul is telling the Ephesians, there's all these people in your church, and they all play a role in your story. It's apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, and you need all of them. You need all. If you don't have one of those, then you are spiritually malnourished. You're spiritually impoverished. So maybe it, I could ask you, if theology and practicality belong together, how has the Lord gifted you? What are some of the tendencies you've seen? Let's just, again, let's just fit them into the schema that we've just discussed. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teachers. Maybe you have some um, prophet tendencies. Like maybe you pray a lot. Maybe you meditate on God's word. Maybe you listen well to others and respond not to hear yourself talk, but out of an overflow of your own prayer and meditation on the heart of God. Maybe you help people at critical moments in their life. I think prophets are burdened for people and they're burdened for truth in a profound way. Maybe your heart burns with zeal about the truth of God's word. Maybe when you see truth or justice undercut, then something inside of you just burns hot and you're angry like the prophets of old. Maybe there's a sense in which God has given you the ability to make known his heart to those around you, to point them to his truth and his love and to hold both of those realities together. Or maybe you have some, some shepherd giftings and tendencies and desires. What would those look like? Maybe you are really uh, acutely touched by the pain that others feel. Maybe you see the need and have the ability to walk with people through pain and suffering. Maybe you do a really good job of caring for people that you already know. You remember birthdays. Uh, you remember big events. You check in with people. Maybe this is just part of your heart, part of what God has called you to do. Maybe you are a shepherd for others. Or maybe your heart doesn't necessarily uh, gravitate towards those insiders, but your heart, I'm not using those words, insiders and outsiders, to say one's better than the other. We'll get to that. Maybe your heart doesn't gravitate towards insiders, but maybe your heart gravitates towards, towards outsiders. Maybe you just get so frustrated by, we're just doing this and doing this and doing this, and there's all these lost people out there. There are thousands within a mile of this church who are, if they died right now, they would go to an eternal hell apart from the grace of God. And what are we doing? How are we getting that? Like, the church needs people like you to remind the people who are focused on the insiders to go to the outsiders. Maybe it just sits heavy on your soul that there are so many people who do not know the gospel. Maybe your heart is pulled to the outsider. Maybe you are an evangelist. Quite frankly, this is a gift that needs activated more and more in our church. Or maybe you just love God's word. You love sermons. You love digging deep into the text. You're interested in theology. You're interested in history. And you want to learn more and more. Maybe you can take complex ideas and distill them into something that someone can hear, they can receive, and then they can use in their life. Maybe God has gifted you to be a teacher. I don't know, but God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to build up the body of Christ. One God has given many different people many sorts of gifts. Here's what we can't miss. We have to bear with one another because your gifts are not your gifts. His gifts are not her gifts. My gift is not your gift. 
We need the people who really are passionate about the insiders to understand that there are some who are really passionate about the outsiders. And that isn't supposed to dull one down, but it's supposed to bring both of them up together. We need people who are constantly reminding us to be loving and gracious. We need people who are constantly reminding us to be committed to biblical truth. We need all the gifts that God has put in his body. I alluded at the beginning of this that if we open this up, we could have a discussion about many gifts. And we might do that. Um, well, we'll be in Wednesday night church this week, but we might introduce that soon in a, discu- a discussion group on, or discipleship group on Wednesday night because it's helpful to begin to think through and identify what are the gifts that God's given me. If we opened it up to other letters, we could talk about all sorts of things. But for now, we need people who want to go reach outsiders and care for insiders. We need people who want to start new things and build old things. We need people who love the truth and we need people who love grace. We need people who are actively identifying the gifts God's given them to play a role in his story. Your personality, your perspective, your past and your proclivities play a role in the story of God. The church must activate the many gifts God has given her to be all that he has called her to be. All these diverse gifts have one purpose. Verse 12, to equip the saints for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's keep reading verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Why does the one God give many gifts? Remember the sermon very briefly. There is one God and one people. He has given many gifts to the many different types of people who are in that one people. Why does the one God give many gifts? Gifts. Verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which begs another question. Why ministry? Why the work of ministry? Just so people who can do nothing in the world like me can have a job. I mean, I'm thankful for that reality. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to the church to build up the body of Christ. He gave these gifts to the church to equip the saints of ministry, and that ministry is about building up the body of Christ. Well, there's another question that we could ask if we wanna think about it. When do you know it's built? Like, when a ha- when, if you're building a house, uh, when do you know the house is built? If you're building something smaller, when do you know, there are benchmarks that you know, okay, when this is in this shape, when the roof is here, when the air conditioner's here, when the internet's on, right, you can live in the house. Um, there are benchmarks that, that you might look for. Well, when do we know that the work of ministry is completed? When do we know that the body of Christ 
is built. How long are these gifts needed? What are we aiming for? What's the goal? What is Christianity for? Why are we here? Why are pastors? Question mark. Is the goal a lot of people in this room just because? A lot of people who pray a prayer and then show up to something as regularly as they can? No, the goal, the goal of all of this is that the church would attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, that we would become who God has made us, that we would become who we are, that we would become more fully today who we will be forever that we would attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Quite simply, the goal is that the church would grow up in every way into Christ. The one God gives many gifts for one goal, that together the many would become one. Why does this matter for you? Well, let's think about it this way. If you've ever asked the question, what is God's will for my life? I think that this text is instructive and helpful in some ways. Because God's will for your life is that you would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that you would be faithful to fan into flame the gifts he's given you, and that you would grow together with all the saints into ever-increasing spiritual maturity that you would grow with the saints into ever-increasing spiritual maturity. I hate how in modern church discussion, you've got churches that like line up behind different sort of ideologies in terms of like, we want to like really reach these like people who don't know anything about the gospel over here. So we're gonna like go lowest common denominator. And then there are churches over here who say like, well, you know, we actually want to go deep in our faith, so we're going we're gonna to kind of aim at people who want to go deep, you know, like the you know, gifted class church, I guess. And so we're going up here, and then we, we, we create ministry strategies sort of accordingly. But the reality of the scriptures is that we can't choose. <laughs> we can't choose between reaching outsiders and maturing Christians. You've got to do both. If we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, if we're going to be faithful to the one Lord, that has called us to himself, we have got to be going and reaching and loving and welcoming and bearing with new believers because new believers don't get it. New believers don't know how to read the Bible. New believers don't know how to pray. New believers don't know God's commands of generosity. New believers don't want to readily forgive. Heck, old believers don't want to readily forgive. Like We got to be patient with one another. And we got to grow together. Width is one measurement, but it's not just like we need depth. Spiritual growth is not counted just by numbers. You hear all these megachurch pastors, they'll say this. I've heard it so many times from people in my own tribes, in my own things I'll go to. They'll say, well, if God wasn't blessing us, then how would we have so many people, so many decisions? I want to be like, have you heard of Islam? I mean, the fastest growing religion in the world. Like, success is no worldly measure of faithfulness. So what does success look like? Let's use the metaphor Paul uses here. Success looks like growing up. Success looks like growing up. Uh, I didn't ask Holly about this metaphor because I haven't seen my poor wife in a week. But I think she'll be okay. Nick, you think she'll be okay? Okay, he thinks so. I'll just blame Nick. And so, um, 
you know, she'll often, uh, you know, be like, man, Roe is growing so fast. Our daughter, Roe, she's growing so fast. Often I'll be like, that's a good thing. Like, good. Like, she's supposed to. Like, if she weren't, we'd be really upset, really freaked out, like nervous. Like, Like, babies are great, but they're not born to be babies. Like, they're born to grow. Like, toddlers are great, but they're not born to be toddlers. And I think that uh, I've even seen in parenting like this unhealth, unhealthy reminiscing can creep in. Oh, I miss X, I miss Y. Like, well, they're meant to flourish into the person that God's creating them to be. And they're, all, of course, already a person, but they're, each step of that maturation is God-ordained and God-designed, and that's kind of the point. And as a church, we are called to grow up. We shouldn't remain babies. So how do you know if you're a spiritual baby or if you're sort of growing spiritually? What does it look like to grow up into Christ? Well, in this passage, Paul talks about not being tossed to and fro by false doctrine. It means being discerning to believe what's biblically true versus what's not. But it's not just being able to pass a theology test. You can understand the whole Bible and love no one, and what does the Bible teach that you receive? Nothing. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? What are all the gifts? When Paul talks about gifts to the church at Corinth, a helpful conversation partner with this passage, he said you can have every one of them. So let's say you could be an apostle, you could be a prophet, you could be an evangelist, you could be a shepherd, you could be a teacher, you could be doing all this stuff, but if you have love, you have nothing. If you don't love the people you're teaching, your words are a clanging cymbal and gong. They are good for no one, and they have no eternal value except to stand against the teacher in judgment on the last day. So growing up spiritually is not just passing a theology quiz. It looks also like loving people who are hard to love. It's not just being quick to find a Bible verse, but being quick to forgive when you are wronged. It's not even simply about reading your Bible a lot. It's about reading your Bible and letting your Bible read you. About laying bare your life before the word of God that God himself may change you, shape you, and mold you. Spiritual maturity, what does it look like? How can I know if I'm growing up? Well, showing up to the gathering of the saints is the bare minimum, frankly. It's about understanding what the church is, what it's for, and showing up ready to love others, serve others, and fix your heart, mind, and body on the Lord whom we worship together. One thing you'll notice about this whole passage is it's about the one God and his one people, and our lives find their meaning in that story, the story of the gospel. Worship team, I am finished. Spiritual maturity looks like the very things Paul calls the church to exhibit at the beginning of the chapter. He says, as he transitions into the more practical side of the letter, 
I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of calling to which you received, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, let me tell you about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit flows from this one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that you are all one. You are all one, but God has given you this one body, many different gifts, and you're all unique and you're all different. And all of those diverse gifts are unified in their goal. They're unified in their purpose. They're unified in their mission that those gifts would come together and that they would build up the church. That people who are not believers would become believers and grow in their faith. That people who are immature believers would become more mature believers. That people who think they're mature believers, but they've just been in church for a long time, that are really immature believers, that they would become people who aren't just church people, but Jesus people who look like, sound like, and if you cut them, grace flows out. Right, that, that all of these gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, the sermons, the stuff, the ministries, the events, the, all of it, all of it would have one purpose, one goal, to build up the body. To build up the body until it's complete with the people who are going to be in it. And to build up the body internally and spiritually. As we're faithful to preach the gospel of the nations, God is bringing people into the fold. And our task is to be faithful to the work of ministry, which is to build up the body of Christ into maturity until the Lord returns. So this is a word for all of us. The church is for us. It's for me. It's for you. Lord, would you mature us, would you give us a desire that more than being seen, more than being validated, more than being recognized, more that, that we would long for spiritual maturity, that we would become more and more like you. Lord, help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling which in our flesh and on our own, we simply cannot do. But by your grace and through your power, we can live this life. Father, remind us this morning that we share one faith in you, the one and only true God, that you have gifted all of us in unique and different ways. But that all of those diverse and unique giftings share one goal, that we would equip the saints for the work of ministry, that ministry being growing up together in maturity, that we would become in heart, mind, soul, body, the totality of our person, more like you that we would image you in a world who needs you, that we would be a picture of the gospel that we preach. So by your spirit, Father, shape us and mold us and transform us. For you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think. Amen. Amen.